Good evening. Welcome to the Forum and a Happy New Year to you all. Thanks for coming out on such a dark, miserable, cold night. Um, 2017 was a pretty grim year, generally speaking, and 2018 doesn't seem much better, but there is this little glimmer of hope. The Forum's programme for the next term is just a safe space for considered critical reflection with philosophers, novelists, scientists, journalists, all sorts of people. Uh, we've got a great programme coming up. I'm really excited <laughs> by it, um, and I hope you are too. So I hope to see you at our future events. We've got one every week. They're always free to attend. Um, and the reason they are free is because we get donations from people like yourselves who come to our events. Um, if you would like to be one of those kind souls who donates to the forum, you can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website, where you'll also find a huge archive of podcasts of our previous events and some writing by contemporary philosophers and all sorts of interesting things. Just a couple of housekeeping matters. Uh, if you could turn your phone off, uh, or at least the volume on your phone off, that would be great. Feel free to tweet along. I think we have a hashtag, our very own hashtag, L-S-E-F-E-P. Um, and you can join us there if you'd like to tweet along with us. Um, and uh, this is being recorded for a podcast. So uh, if you do ask a question, first of all, please wait for the roving mic to find you so everyone can hear you. And just be aware that it's going to be recorded and put out onto the internet forevermore. It's more than enough for me. I'm so happy to be able to hand you over to our panel. And thank you again for coming. Thanks, Beth. Uh, welcome, my name's Danielle Sands, I'm a fellow at the Forum and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event in which our two speakers, novelist Emma McBride and academic Kay Mitchell, will be thinking about whether it's possible to express our inner experience. So perhaps, Emma, you could kick things off. Do you think we can express our thoughts and feelings and if so, how? How should we go about doing that? God, I really hope so, otherwise uh, <laughs> the last few years of my life have been a real waste. <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose for me in my writing, I'm interested in finding ways to more fully express it than the traditional uh, linear sentence might allow. Um, and I find it sort of useful to think that maybe the unconscious doesn't really exist, or if it does exist, to think about it in terms of um, an active vocabulary and a passive vocabulary. And that, you know, your passive vocabulary isn't something that you don't know. It's just something that you don't use. But it's there and available and accessible once you sit down and need to use it to write. Whereas your active vocabulary is your sort of verbal, what you use in your day-to-day, -day, simple, get-on-with-it kind of words. And, and so I, I tend to think about the conscious and the unconscious in that way rather than one being accessible and one being completely inaccessible, but actually it's really about, it's there and you know what it is, you just have to really, really think about it in order to get it out. So nothing is inaccessible then? We should um, at least think that nothing is inaccessible. I think that should be the starting point, that the potential is there for it to be accessible. Um, how you then go about expressing it, especially in terms of literature, is another problem entirely. <laughs> But we should start from this idea that there are no limits and then see what happens when we bump up against things that might feel like limits. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why it's also really important to not arrive at writing fiction 
I'm going to say fiction a lot because that's obviously what I do, so I'm not going to try and cross over into anyone else's discipline. It's important when you get to that point where you're, when you're writing, when you're trying to dig into these things, that you're not arriving there with a set of rules already pre-established in your head about how one goes about solving the problems of accessing these parts of human experience. Um, and, yeah, and that's, what's, that's what interests me, and I think that's kind of been a misstep in fiction since, um, you know, people got really bored of modernism and said it didn't exist anymore. So thinking, so starting off with a set of rules is the wrong way to go. Yeah, I mean, how can you possibly set off with a set of rules? I mean, and if you, if you know how to arrive at a solution through this given set of rules, how will you ever come to a different kind of solution? How do you deal with things that don't operate within those rules and you just discard them and they become unimportant when in fact they could be completely vital to whatever it is you're trying to to work on, which I think often writers who come from different backgrounds can bring that to the table in a way that writers that come from more traditional backgrounds might struggle with. She said snobbishly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you're saying that what you need to do is you go in open-minded and then you basically see what happens. I think you have to invent the machine as you're using it. Yeah. So in your writing process, you set off, you were willing to be open-minded and find out what was going to happen. Mm. What happened? For me, oh God, you know, sex and death mostly, <laughs> as with everything else and everyone else. Um, uh, I think, I mean, when I was writing my second novel, The Lesser Bohemians, it, I, I started it in the same way that I started with the first, which was, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm going to sit down and write words every day until something emerges. Um, and whenever I would arrive at a block, certainly in any kind of story, and I, obviously I'm a writer who's interested in story rather than plot, um, which I think story is far more interesting because that's basically life, right? Um, I would always return when I would, when there would be some kind of psychological block where I'd know what the characters would do next, I would always return it to the body and think about what, what was physically happening in the room, which is obviously why there's a whole lot of sex in that book. <laughs> it's a very useful way to help you think about what's going on inside people. Um, but that ensuring that there's a constant interchange between the two, between the mind and the body, between the emotions and the body, um, between the, the gut and the body, um, seemed to me a really interesting way to humanely push a story organically forward rather than, you know, an artificial sort of plot invention. So for you, the body is this kind of bridge between thinking inner experience and thinking the... Yeah, absolutely. And, and the interchange between those two things is, is what's really important because, you know, I think nowadays we think a lot about the effect of the mind on the body, about people's sort of psychological difficulties being expressed in physical terms, but we tend to not think about how that works in reverse quite so well. And even in really sort of basic, boring things. I remember someone once told me about a, um, a job interview that they went to, and this person was tremendously intelligent, talented, but in any kind of interview situation had tendency to meander a lot. 
And so we'd always get to a very interesting point, but would take quite a long time to get there and go through many different avenues. And when he went for this job interview, for a job he really wanted, he had accidentally drunk far too much coffee before he went in. And when he got in there, he suddenly realised that he was dying to go to the toilet, but couldn't because that would not be an appropriate way to behave in an interview. And so the effect of this meant that he got to the point very quickly with everything that he wanted to say and every question that he answered, he suddenly the mind was being forced into making all the connections that he would normally allow himself to take a long time to make to get there. And I, that sort of interests me, the idea that, you know, that actually the needs and the urges of the body changed can really change the outcomes in, in your life. It's not just about, you know, irritation or satisfaction of wants, or, but even little, small, insignificant things like, I have to go to the loo at the wrong moment, can have I been really important. I reading a to... potentially apocryphal rumour about David Cameron a couple of years ago that he would always go to an important meeting desperate for the loo. Oh, really? For that very reason. I should have said that that's who my story was about. <laughs> <laughs> I will from now on. <laughs> So you're saying that we, we underestimate generally the, the effect that the body has on our inner experience and how the way we relate to the world. And that one yeah. of the things you want to do in your writing is, is return us to the body as a way of thinking through the whole, the kind of, the whole nature of... Well, I think it's about decompartmentalising the life of right. the body. And I feel that's something, you know, that the, the body has been so looked down upon, um, particularly in literature and, and, you know, particularly, I would say there's a lot of even contemporary male writers who uh, can only write about the sexual body with this kind of incredible degree of disgust that I think is, it sort of blocks the progression and the evolution of, of, of writing about the body and the sexual body and sexual experience and the language that has developed in order for us to, to write about it with is, is so, um, I mean, it's so atrophied in comparison to, to language that's available for everything else. It's just such a kind of narrow vocabulary developed for talking about the sexual experience. Um, but so when you started writing The Lesser Bohemians, did you know how much sex was going to be in it? Did you realise it was going to be <laughs> so... Um, Full of shagging. No. <laughs> I did not. Because um, I didn't when I started reading it. Yeah. I remember because I'd obviously read uh, Girl is a half One Thing. Um, and I, I, was, I didn't quite know what I was expecting. And then one of the things that I find so intoxicating about reading The Lesser Bohemians was it's so much about love and this experience, the kind of mental, physical experience of love. Yeah, and I, I think when I started, I didn't... I absolutely didn't know that that's what the book would be about. Um, and as I kind of went along and it became apparent to me that there was going to be so much sex in it, I did find that, you know, Irishly excruciating <laughs> uh, at the thought of, oh, my God, I feel good to read this and think I'm a dirty bitch. But, um, <laughs> but I, re I realised quite early on that actually that was, a, it was about character development. It was about using a different kind of lens through which to look at these people and, and uh, to help me understand who they were um, and the reader then hopefully to understand who they were. Um, and, and that really, once I understood that, that really freed me up and it seemed like actually quite an important thing to be writing about and 
quite an important lens to try and use because mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, so... I don't know, there's just such a weird constriction about the way that sex is written about. Can I ask about that, actually? Because I, <clears throat> I'm thinking of an author that I wrote about some time ago, some years ago, who... who writes quite a lot of sex, and when I asked this author, who I won't reveal... Oh, come um, on, Kay. Um, you know, why is it that there's so much sex in, in your work? Um, they replied, oh, it's, you know, it's a plot device. They could, the characters could be playing canasta, it could be anything, um, which I thought was, at the very least, disingenuous. Yes. Because it does seem that there's something about sex that, that does reveal character or does allow for that, the kind of pushing of character, which is maybe, I mean, this, this um, bringing us back to the body and this difficulty also when I mean, the starting point the difficulty of representing inner experience that desire is often the thing mm -hmm. that when we're talking about inner, inner experience we're talking about desire and um, and that's something which is kind of visible in the body and in people's actions but also often reveals something much uh, more uh, closed off or hidden I suppose yeah, I, I think there's, it sort of reveals an essential brutality in human nature, which I am very interested in. Um, and it is ungovernable, and so it doesn't fit neatly into plot-driven novels, for instance, because if, you know, unless, unless it's kind of, oh, well, they're shagging and they're having an affair and therefore the wife finds out and this, this, this happens, there's not much point to it. But when you're when you're trying to look at it in a sort of in a more literary novel where you're exploring what it is, they, it can take you to a lot of strange places. Um, and yeah, I think the idea that it could just be completely interchangeable with canasta, I fear for what that sex writing may be like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a sort of a fascinating thing to look at, and also. The questions that you then get asked, because you've written a lot about that, are very interesting, mm -hmm. about what's the difference between this and pornography, and all of that kind of thing is quite... Um, I think it's telling and unfortunate that people can only... that that's the only other re reference point they have for explicit writing about sex. And that is the way that we view the body, or the, or the way we view our sexual selves, is this very contained version, or flagrant commercialized version of, of what the sexual body can be. Yeah, so it's sort of instrumental or romanticized, but yeah. not much in between. Mm. Not much humanity in there, um, and not much capacity for vulnerability, and I think mm -hmm. that's the thing that's often missed out in a lot of writing about the body, is, is it, it, it's either writing about the, sort of the physical motions, or it's writing about someone's emotion about it before the event or after event but not actually all the variations that they can go through within the event uh, itself um, lost my point now but, uh. yes I think uh, it's just it's an unfortunately absent part mm. of life and of that connection within ourselves and to find a different way of writing about it seems to be very important, particularly in the sort of the current climate of the sort of hypersexualized way that every aspect of life is now portrayed in the media. That's me.
I was wondering what you find particularly difficult to write. So you seem very adept at writing about desire and the, the, experience, the physical and the emotional experience of sex. Is there a particular emotion or a particular emotional experience that is hard to write? Is anger hard to write? Is fear hard to write? Is what's difficult? Or is it all just different? No, I think it's all I think it's all just different and you know, I mean Lesser Bohemians took me nine years to write, so it took me a really long time to understand how I wanted to write about sex and where I was going with it. I think things that are <clears throat> difficult are boredom. That's quite a hard thing to write about because it's quite a hard thing to be interested in because you can only really write about it if you're interested in what it might become or what comes out of it, but it, the sort of boredom itself is not an easy thing to write about. But I, I mean, I think coming from the background that I did, which is one acting background, that idea of always connecting, that their emotion on its own is not of much value, is not interesting particularly to write about in and of itself, but how, it's, how, that, how it is arrived at, how it is expressed or repressed, that's interesting to write about. But the sort of pure, she sits down and she cries and describing someone in the act of crying and being sad is not an interesting thing to write about. It's the getting there and, 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 and what comes after. And do you think that fiction has a kind of privileged role to play in the expression of inner experience. Do you think it can make a better job than other discourses? Yeah, obviously we're I in do. a kind of philosophical context yeah. here. Do you think <laughs> novels yes, I think are the fiction, way to go? Fiction is best. <laughs> no, uh, but I do. I think, I think um, it has a, a capacity for holding things together in a way very few other forms do. Um, because it allows you to be shown the outside so you can see inside yourself what you might see on a screen you can see that but you are also allowed to go inside and understand the internal mechanism of how what you see on the outside gets to be there in the first place and I think that's something that that fiction can do in a way that no other form can do it is not just a representation it's a, and it's not just a recreation it's it's like a, a whole other way of allowing people to live through that experience and to live through someone else's experience in a very visceral way if you, if you get it right. So, so one of the roles of fiction is to kind of stimulate the inner experience of the reader in a way that kind of responds to the inner experiences of the characters? Or? Well I, I mean I think obviously there's lots of different kinds of writing and people write in different ways <laughs> for different reasons. For me it is really about Girl is a Huffman Thing for instance was really about putting the reader inside the body of another human being and trying to make them experience within themselves what that character was experiencing, which is why she was never described physically, why there are no names, why there are no places, there are no markers of identity to separate the reader from the character. It's always about trying to keep them as close to her and to her experience as possible so that in that moment, in that time, they're not thinking about what they're reading. They're only experiencing what they're reading. And then later they can form their own judgments about it. So it's about inhabiting first and then, I guess, cognizing later. Yeah, well, I think about, it's about trying to cross the boundaries between people, about, about kind of feeding into aspects of ourselves that we all share. 
that it's not to say that we all have the same experience or that we have we experience similar experiences in the same way. Um, but I think all of us have a capacity, well, you know, apart from psychopaths, obviously, have the capacity for, for empathy, and it's about trying to create a, a little bit a deeper, uninterrupted form of that, trying to touch into that aspect of another person to show them the life of somebody else. You know, we, 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 can never, we can never know what it is like to live inside the life of another human being, but to try and get as close to that as possible is what I'm aiming for. Um, what about non-humans? I don't really care about the life of dogs. <laughs> so for you, the, the, the kind of empathetic response <clears throat> is between humans. It's always a, a kind of human interaction. Uh, it's always between humans. As opposed to what? I'm, you know, I, that, for me, that's the m thing that I'm most interested in, mm -hmm. is, is, is the interaction between people. And, you know, other writers are interested in other things, but for me, that is, that is the, main, the main point of it all, is what happens between people yeah. in the world and how that changes them and how that changes, you know, the world around them. So you've said no rules. Yeah. But surely you think there are certain ways of writing, certain techniques which are better suited to really getting to grip, getting, evoking this kind of inhabiting another character. Well, I mean, for me as a writer, yes, obviously, I'm interested in using those tools of modernism. But for you know, instead of sort of breaking down the the barrier between. Um, different classes or different modes of thinking about the world and it's about trying to to break down different ways in which people think about themselves and think about the experiences of others it's really about almost going in the opposite direction from classic modernism which is about you know I mean if you think about Joyce it's about <clears throat> placing the man in the, in the at the center of the universe and connecting out to to everything else in the world and all literature and all art and all everything else. And for me, it's a kind of re absolute rejection of that approach, but using that, those techniques and those ideas to go as far inside as possible. So for me, that's, you know, and, and then what that does, what that necessarily does to how you use language um, is what's important to me. Thank you. I wonder whether this might be a good point to take some questions. You can see a, a hand up there. If you could wait for the microphone, that would be great. Hello. Um, I was interested in um, you, the sort of kind of abjectness to the body. So you speak of how the body kind of writes itself in a way. Um, there's a, it reminded me of a text by a woman called Elaine Scarry called The Body in Pain. And it speaks about the inexpressibility of physical pain. It says that it actively destroys language. How do you see that fitting into your perspective in terms of how we express the inexpressible nature of either mental pain or physical pain. Yeah. 
I think, I mean, that's something that people say a lot, that, that pain is something that destroys um, or is inexpressible or is unwritable. And I understand what that means, but I also disagree with that, what that means. And I think it means we have to make language work in a different way in order to express that. Um, and I think that, you know, there's just been so much pressure within the publishing world to write in a very particular way, to write about certain subjects in a particular way, that this idea that language is a living, breathing thing that does not need to be respected because Shakespeare wrote like this and will survive whatever you do to it has been lost. And uh, it, it seems to me that pain, if, if, it, if it destroys the linear sentence, then that is what it must do in order for it to be expressed rather than, it, than just being to say, this cannot be written about. It can be written about. You just have to find the way to write about it and do whatever it is you need to in order to get to that point. That kind of um, relates to my other point. Um, the sort of, do you think it has um, any sort of parallels with um, James Joyce um, at the end of Ulysses um, with, um, oh, I forget her, her, her name. But Molly. Molly, Molly Bloom. Um, and the way that she expresses um, a sexual experience through, as you say, breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that kind, of, that kind of medium relates to your own work? Well, I mean, I think like, like you know, most writers interested in language, Molly Bloom's soliloquy is obviously hugely important, was hugely important in its time, um, and, you know, was an early, if not the first perhaps attempt by a writer to 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 recreate the female sexual experience in language and you know I think it's I think it's a brave attempt it's a beautiful piece of writing it's not really what it's like to be on the inside of female lying in bed having a wank and thinking about <laughs> her life at night but good on you Jimmy Joyce I say for having a go at it in the time that you did um, so yeah I mean I think that that is a hugely important piece of writing but that is only the beginning yeah. and sadly I think for many in many ways it was kind of well that was done now no one else is allowed to do that you have to leave that alone because James Joyce wrote it and everyone else can go away and that's the end of that conversation because we have already got this written by the great master and this is bullshit this is you know this is the beginning and there's there's you know everywhere else to go with that with that I just have one more point um, you say that you're, you limit it to human encounters but the very idea of getting inside and of encountering otherness, this kind of abject realm, is that it tends to move beyond what is human. Do you, would you ever consider that kind of field in the sense that by delving into what is other, that is in itself non-human, if, if you get what I, I mean? I don't... Do you know no, because I, I don't think there is anything that is non human. I don't understand really what that can possibly mean. There is nothing that of inhuman experience that cannot be expressed even if it has to be done in an abstract way but also 
sometimes I wonder why, why people write about things in the abstract. And I think sex is something that people do write about in the abstract a lot because it is less uncomfortable, which is why you get so much terrible sex writing which involves sort of enormous metaphors about comets and <laughs> volcanoes and all this kind of shit because people can't just write about what is and actually sometimes to just go against all of that, to, to, to not write what something is like but only what it is, I think cuts away at all of the dehumanising elements. And I'm not interested in trying to write about human experience in an intellectual way. That doesn't... Yeah. That's for other people. Okay. So you mentioned abstraction. I wonder whether this is a good time to bring Kay in and to think a little bit about... So we've talked a lot about the ways in which literature and, and certain types of literature... Um, can help us think about inner experience and help us express it. Um, Kay, what do you think that philosophy can learn from literature and maybe what can literature learn from philosophy when it comes to expressing these things? Well, we, we, we talk about them as being very different disciplines, and they are. I think they're using different languages, different registers. Um, but I think some of the things that Ema's been talking about that literature can do... Um, might be useful for philosophers, I think, to reflect on their own practice. Um, so to, to think actually about um, some of those um, affective and experiential um, elements of literature. I mean, what literature can do, I suppose, is, um, is to give us a sense of what it feels like, what it feels like to have a particular experience, what it feels like to be in someone's head or to, to be uh, that other person. Um, what philosophy can do, I suppose, is um, to, to theorise that, to think, to actually to start to break down into finer distinctions. Well, what constitutes, you know, when are we actually talking about inner experience here? When are we talking about something quite different, like voice, for example, um, which with literature, we're often talking about inner experience, but actually really what we're talking about is voice um, and the kind of reconstruction of voice. Um, I think... Philosophy can, can help us dig into what a mental state is and how it works. Literature can then maybe can illustrate that, I think, um, can take us inside the feeling of it. But I think they're both, I mean, I think they're both forms of, uh, they're best forms of attentiveness. And um, they might do that attentiveness differently, but, um, I mean, it's something that I think Iris Murdoch talks about that in... Um, against dryness because uh, you know she's someone who was working as a novelist and as a philosopher um, and I think uh, the quality of attentiveness that we find both in sort of good philosophy and very good writing um, that's that's actually the point where they meet I think um, what literature maybe adds to that is contingency uh, the uh, the unexpected, the unreliable, um, because it is perhaps in the first instance less interested in categorization, I guess. Mm. And I guess the, the body comes up again here because philosophy is so often in flight from the body because yes. the body seems contingent or particular when philosophy is looking for something universal. Yeah, so yes, and I think that, um, I think that emphasis on, on the body is really useful. Um, as a way of, and I mean, this is why, I mean, I 
predictably, you know, interrupted to ask a question about sex, um, you know, which I write about a lot in my work, and, and it, you know, not because, you know, as my dean of humanities thinks, we're all obsessed with sex in my department, um, but because actually it is a very interesting way of understanding both um, the structural, you know, the sort of systems of power that we inhabit, um, and the very, very personal, um, the very intimate, the, the seemingly internal, and it, it, it sort of bridges those things. Um, and, and so the reason I suppose I asked um, Ema previously about writing about sex is because that, I mean, to me, your novels are so much about desire, but desire in a very broad sense, so not only sex. I mean, in a way, it's sort of, um, I, I understand why people ask you about sex all the time, and I did that again, sorry. But, um, but actually, what you're writing about is the sort of unruliness of desire, often, the desires that drive these characters. Um, and that is, and that, I mean, that's, desire is maybe something that philosophy is more wary of, I suppose, um, because of its seeming partiality or unpredictability. Um, so, Amy, you talked a little bit about character and character development, but we haven't talked that much so far about the self mm -hmm. or the subject, if we want to put it in a kind of philosophical context. Um, when we are talking about inner experience, when we're expressing it, do we learn something about the self? Do we learn something about what selves are? Um, I think... <laughs> my, my feeling is that we, we learn that the whatever the self is, if there is such a thing as the self, it exceeds its articulation somehow. Um, and, and actually the, the language of expression, um, I think it's very, it's, it's very tricky in relation to literature uh, because um, historically we have tended to read that as texts expressing the intentions, intentions and desires of their authors Actually, what we're more interested in in this discussion is um, expressing the inner lives of characters, um, characters who are fictional constructions, um, who are made up of um, this, this public shared thing called language. Um, I think what we learn when we try and articulate, what we learn about the self when we try to articulate it is that, that language is crucial not just to its articulation or our attempts at articula articulating it but also to its constitution that the self is linguistically constituted to some extent I would say um, and I think we learn the importance of narrative actually um, that the self is a kind of narrative it's a story that we tell ourselves that we tell each other daily which we revise and retell um, and which is um, contradictory, um, unreliable, uh, altered according to who we're talking to um, or how we want to represent ourselves, which is not to say that it's, it's utterly false. But is it, it necessary? It, we need to have a narrative of ourselves um, that we tell ourselves. I think, I think we do, and I think when that narrative breaks down um, or when it's incoherent, that causes pain and illness and difficulty. Um, so... 
And it's not just about communicating to others. It's, it's also what we tell ourselves, which is why we say things like, oh, I'm not, I wouldn't do that. That's not the sort of thing I would do. You know, um, or, I mean, so it's, you know, it's an idea of character that we have um, and of certain things being out of character, but that, but it often has a narrative uh, structure to it. So, you know, when we tell, when we tell ourselves to others, we make selections, we order, um, we impose plot, progress, development of some kind, often. <laughs> but is the self then just something that we perform? Is it hopeless that we're trying to discover some kind of underlying self, the true self under, under all of the kind of performance? Is it just performance? Um, I suppose the desire to perform it suggests that there is something motivating that <laughs> desire. That's a very convoluted way of saying it. Um, so I don't think it's just performance. Um, at the same time, I would be wary of suggesting that there is there's something absolutely uh, essential, stable, unwavering, um, some kind of core um, of the self. But um, but I think it's and I think that, I mean performance. Uh, we we perhaps think of the idea of performance as. as um, or that description of something as performative as trivialising. Mm. Um, but actually, performance is really important. Um, and, and it is productive. So um, performing a self is, is, is being a person. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, in fact, the least trivial thing. Um, I mean, I think, in, I think in the internet age, we we are perhaps more self-conscious about that performance of self. I mean, I think social media is lar largely about the performance of self. It's, um, you know, it allows you to um, illustrate your tastes and to say, this is who I am. You know, the selfie, the list of favorite albums, um, the apparently confessional um, monologue about your day, the picture of what you've just eaten. I mean, it's... Um, it's trying to build up, a, and, and so we are curating ourselves, I think, more than we used to, perhaps, or more self-consciously. But does that just fit into a kind of literary history of autobiography, do you mm. think, or do you think it's doing something different? I think it's probably an extension of, of that. Um, uh, a sort of, you know, hellish multimedia <laughs> extension of that. Um, What's interesting is that what's different with the social media age is that it's instant. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's coming with time, like autobiography mm -hmm. or memoir. <clears throat> it's not, you know, you can spend your whole life imagining how you will revenge yourself mm -hmm. in your memoir, but in social media, everything happens instantaneously. Yes. So it's suddenly a performance of self without mm -hmm. the collection of the self in order to, to get out there. It's just the, the sort of an instinctive reaction. In some ways, it seems almost, it can be a more truthful version of yourself in that moment than a self that will be remembered in later years. Yes, I would, I would like to think it could be. I, I worry that, actually, I worry, I don't really worry about it. Um, <laughs> I wonder whether we're so, we pick up these languages so quickly. Um, I mean, I'm, and you know, I am, I am a social media user, I'm not... Um, 
I actually don't have a problem with it, but, um, but I'm, you know, I'm conscious, even in the way that I use it, of how I'm picking up kind of um, ticks and tricks and techniques in the way that I communicate myself, um, which uh, make it much less spontaneous or honest than it might seem. Um, follow me on Facebook. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, entirely unreliable um, and false. Um, but that does fit into the literary mm. history of confessions yes. and memoirs, that there is this kind of performance of spontaneity in that mm -hmm. history, which you're saying we're seeing just in a different form. Yes, I think so. Um, and, I mean, confession, confession is an interesting word and genre because... What that, what that brings into this discussion, I suppose, about the expression of inner life, expression of self, um, performance of self, is an acknowledgement of a very particular power relationship, an acknowledgement of ritual, mm. because confession always involves those things. You're always confessing to somebody for some reason, in some context. Um, and as the confessor, you may seem to be revealing yourself, making yourself vulnerable, abasing yourself even, but often you're not, you're doing the opposite, actually. Um, so, so I think that, uh, that, that very sort of uh, structured uh, discourse system of confession um, is very interesting when it comes out in literature, I think um, also in the way that it comes out in, in kind of online confessions, I suppose. Do you think, just to... <laughs> Oh, just talk about the uh, uh, social media again, um, because I'm not on it, and I know I'm not on it because I, I am wary of getting trapped in, into a very reactive version of myself. Do you mm -hmm. think that that's a valid concern? <laughs> um, I think it's less of a concern than the time wasting, but, um, <laughs> well, but yes, too. it is a. Um, yeah, I think it is a. I think it is a concern and I mean I also um, you know as someone who regularly goes back to um, John Berger's ways of seeing I also think about women watching themselves and wonder how through social media the kinds of selves we're performing or um, are then affecting the way that we're acting offline so um, do I go to a particular place or wear a particular outfit because I know I can take a photograph of it and put it on Facebook and it will say something about me? Um, I mean, I, you know, I go to lots of gigs. I have done for decades. Um, I went before people had smartphones. <laughs> now you're in a gig and everyone has their phone up. And it's, so there's a, there's a sort of that, um, that mediating of everyday life can also become an odd kind of mediation of self, I think. Um, and maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's just the, uh, the world that we're inhabiting now. I mean, I think there are, I think there are um, again, it sounds like I'm slacking off social media. I'm not. I mean, I think it speaks to some very real needs that we have. Um, the need for our, for our lives and ourselves to be intelligible um, and the need for recognition. And I don't mean recognition in, in the sense of celebrity, but more fundamentally, philosophically, to be recognized as subjects, as existing, I think. Um, and uh, and so I I think that's I think that's both why social media is so popular, but also why maybe we respond to literary texts that allow us to 
um, to inhabit other people because paradoxically we're achieving recognition somehow through the kinds of identification that take place in reading, I think. I'm interested to come back to the question of the performance of self and whether a stable self exists in any meaningful sense. Because you mentioned earlier that you're, one of the reasons you're, you found yourself writing a lot about sex was that it was quite useful in terms of character development. I'm thinking about when I was reading The Lesser Bohemians. Um, yes, obviously, character development is important, but there's something about um, your writing which means that it's all about an experience and another experience and another experience, and there's something about character and identity which sometimes disintegrates within those experiences. There's something about the potency, the intensity of experience, which means the self kind of dissolves in some way, especially like a sexual experience. Mm -hmm. Is there a tension there between the construction of a kind of self and, I guess, the nature of experience? I don't think there's a, a tension. I mean, I think if, in order to be able to allow oneself to dissolve, one has to have a sufficient sense of self. Mm -hmm that you can know that can happen and then you can come back and everything will not have gone to hell in the interim uh, while you were in bed. Um, but I think, I mean, for me, the idea of the, the self is that there, there is a, a sort of essential, but that it becomes clouded and covered and that a lot of the, in the Lesser Bohemians, for instance, is about people who have decided upon a performance of themselves and then find themselves when in relation to this other person who seems to be able to just kind of lift a layer, albeit accidentally, of, of being unable to maintain that performance mm. or that self that they have decided is the best self that they should give to the world. This should be, you know, who, who they are and this is best for all concerned with yeah. doing themselves. Um, There's a great line in Judith Butler where she says that other people undo us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I yeah I think that's true, and I but I also think, you know, for me as a writer, it was about trying to find the most, about making it very specific all the time that it wasn't about an older actor having an affair with a yeah. young drama student. It had to be about this man in this particular set of circumstances coming from this background in relation to this girl with her, you know, background and, and how those two things then react off each other. First, how they, they kind of, he, you know, cannily performs the self that he has created and she sort of musters to find a self that can work comfortably alongside with it. But in that vulnerability, his own begins to fall away and he almost accidentally begins to reveal this other, truer self to her and and so I mean it just it's it's in one way it's easy to say there's a self but for me it always has to be a very particular kind mm -hmm. of self in order for those things to be able to happen in any way sort of truthfully. So you need to I guess represent the particularity of experience in order to access some yeah, elements of the absolutely. universality yeah, of because it. Because none of us none of us are just you know an example of a type of person. We do not go through life being the type of person that we are. We can use things like social media or whatever to describe elements of ourselves in shorthand. But we are not the, that is not the sum of us. That is just various ways in which we can reveal ourselves or which make it easier to reveal aspects of ourselves. 
but you know, and this is why people are always seeking out intimacy in relationships, either sexual or emotional, in friendships or with part, whatever, is that is is to find that place in which that other all those bits stop being bits and allow you to open up this other mm. sort of deeper version of yourself, more um, truthful version of yourself, mm. perhaps, or the more the bit of yourself that you are you know constitutes yourself but feel perhaps is less acceptable in the, in the world, in the context in which you live. I mean, I think that, that vulnerability that you're talking about is really important. I think, it's, um, I think it's a kind of defining feature of being a, a, a subject and, and it suggests to me that the self is, is, is relational. Um, that we are, I mean, that we are affected by others. There, there, for me, there isn't a stable sen self in the sense that we are changed by other people, and that, um, and and so, th and the self kind of accumulates as well, I suppose, um, and fluctuates, which which doesn't mean that it is utterly um, in flux. <laughs> I'd like to come back to this point you made about kind of, I guess, performing femininity in some mm. way and, and the gendering of subjectivity and the, the gendering of the way that, I guess, the self is written about. Um. Um, well, I, I suppose I would, I would want to approach this through the topic of shame, which I've been writing about for a while, actually for a really shamefully long period of time. It's a bit like writing a book about failure. Um, and after a while, people stop asking you when you're going to finish the book. Um, but I have uh, particularly been writing about shame and gender and writing. And there are, there are various different philosophical accounts of shame which suggest, philosophical and psychoanalytical and um, from various other discourses, feminist, queer, and um, more besides. Um, but most suggest in some way or another that it is, uh, that feeling shame is fundamental to who we are, um, that it is fundamental in the process of socialization, um, becoming aware of ourselves as an object for others, um, and um, uh, Agamben suggests that it, it expresses actually something quite fundamental about the experience of being a subject, which is this sort of simultaneous um, experience of subjection and sovereignty. Um, so, and those are the things that interested me about shame, but I think what th doesn't come into that discussion enough is um, about how, about shame's role in the formation of subjectivity um, is actually how that works quite differently for men and women, I think, um, for people identified as men and women. Um, and to me, it seems that shame plays a particularly important constitutive role in the construction of femininity. Mm. Um, it's not just that it regulates femininity, but to me, it's actually a, a constituent factor of it in, in a way that it isn't for masculinity. Um, where it still has that regulatory role. Um, so I think, I mean, so shame for me is a way of, I suppose, of talking about how subjectivity is formed and how that is um, almost immediately gendered. Um, and then with writing, I mean, the kind of writing that I'm interested in is writing that tends to 
then try and work through that, not work through the shame, in fact, not in any redemptive sense, but to inhabit it somehow, um, to think, well, what does this feel like? Um, and uh, I mean, the topic of sort of abjection and, and pain, um, by extension trauma, I suppose, came up earlier, and the expressibility or not of that. Um, again, there's quite a lot of discussion around shame as something that cannot be expressed um, somehow, but I think that's wrong. <laughs> um, I, think it, I think it can, but I, uh, but I often, I, I think that it often forces then um, some interesting uh, kind of linguistic and, um, and structural uh, disjunctions at the level of the text that it actually um, often pushes writers into writing in what we might call more experimental ways trying to express that shamed subjectivity. Yeah. I wonder if you might respond to this email just in terms of, of writing kind of gendered subjects. I mean, it seems like your texts start off by writing female experience, but then obviously there's other, there's male characters. There's yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say, although, you know, both of my novels are largely about female experience, I often in a way feel as though I'm not really writing from the gendered perspective. Mm -hmm. That really, that's feeding into the way the characters are treated and then how they react to that treatment, but not necessarily who they are. That, that, that you know, in Les Remians, Eileen's essential self is different to Stephen's essential self. I think, <clears throat> I think maybe for me in the writing, I feel more comfortable using that kind of very invasive uh, modernist um, internal monologue. I feel more comfortable writing that for a female character. Um, but at the same time, when I was writing Stephen's long external yeah. told monologue, I don't think I would have written that in, in a different way. I think it, for me it felt that that had to be written as what it is like to, to listen and to observe someone else's experience. Um, but at the same time, writing his experience, I didn't think, right, what would a man say now? <laughs> I only thought, what would, what would a person say now? What would your now? character say in now? This, yeah. In this moment, in this tale, these things that I must say, <clears throat> what does a person feel in these situations yeah. and how do they react to them and how do they then express them and how do they tell these things to a person that they care about? Um, so I don't think essentially there's mm -hmm. much difference, yeah. but obviously in, context, in the context of society then it's very different. Should we take some more questions now? Why not? Um, in, in The Lesser Bohemians, just as you touched upon now about the monologue, I've, I think one of the things I found really interesting about it was that you have this active voice telling the vast majority of the story from her point of view. And she, we get everything from her experience and she doesn't really have the opportunity to show any artifice to us because we're sort of experiencing it with her. Whereas you give him the opportunity to confess, to construct, and we don't have any idea of his internal monologue. Um, and I wondered how, it seems like that, obviously that was a very deliberate choice, but I wondered what the kind of effect on um, our view of Stephen that was supposed that that you thought that might create. Does that make sense? The question. 
Well, I suppose at that point I was mostly preoccupied with, with the story that he would tell and what <clears throat> you would then understand about this character who's been quite elusive and quite reserved up until that point. Um, and, it, and it was kind of an interesting balance to play with it because, of course, you don't get any of her backstory, really, but what you get is complete access to everything that she is in every moment as she goes through it. And then with him, you get none of that, but you get the whole backstory in kind of gruesome detail. Um, and I suppose I was interested more in, in how those two things rub up against each other, as it were. Um, yeah, because you're left with the question at the end of which, which of those two people you think you know better having been given those two completely opposite. Well, you know, in, indeed. I mean, the thing is, of course, Eileen's internal monologue is... That's a cheat, because none of us can ever know what that is like. That's, that's why you read a novel, because you can have that experience. But in everyday life, you can never have that experience of somebody else's life. What you have is, is the experience that she has of Stephen's life, is what he tells her and how he behaves towards her. That's what she gets. That's what we all get in life when we're dealing with other people. Um, and, and so it was, I suppose, I, you know, I felt as though I was, I was kind of giving, because also those characters are sort of mirrors of each other. And, you know, the one's male and one's female. And there's, it was, it's also about the secret that they share and, and the fact that she's beginning her adult life carrying this weight. And he's well into his adult life, having made lots of decisions based on this kind of this secret and how those, those two things reflect off each other over this gap of 20 years between them and how they interact with each other as a result of it. Um, so, I don't know. I think it was also, you know, just an interest in 19th century novels and the fact that I love books in which people sit down and tell you their entire life story <laughs> and I just wanted to stick that in there as well. Because, you know, these are the different ways in which we experience other people and to see if those things can work together. I don't know whether they do or not, but for me it was interesting to stick them into the same novel. Thanks. There's a couple of questions towards the back. Um, hi. Uh, what do you think of, um, say, the drive throughout human history uh, to almost destroy the self? So... Um, I know in Buddhism, um, uh, through meditation, there's the drive to, you know, reach nirvana and be closer to the uh, to the universe. Um, and in Christianity, there's uh, Jesus uh, going to the desert and having 40 days fasting. Um, and I know more recently, uh, I don't know if you know the author uh, Eckhart Tolle, um, who wrote... Uh, he wrote a book about um, just uh, destroying the ego and to reach, you know, inner peace. Some people say it's new age nonsense, but you can see it throughout history. There's this drive to, you know, destroy the self. Um, do you, any of you have an opinion on that? Um, I think I would want to distinguish between um, something that was a philosophy that was sort of anti-ego, anti anti a kind of egotism or anti-individualism. And, and a destruction of the self. 
Um, I mean, I think, we're, I think we've always been interested in transcendent experiences or what seem to be transcendent experiences. Um, and that's maybe a different thing. Um, and also sometimes a form of intoxication. Um, but I think that the sort of surrendering of ego is maybe not identical to the sort of surrendering of the self somehow. It's, but it, I mean, it's maybe asking us to think about the self in different ways, to think about it as mm -hmm. relational, you know, not isolated, not atomized, sort of you know, um, at one with the universe, but not thereby um, destroyed, I suppose. Um, I think, uh, for me, because the self is completely inextricable to the physical self, I don't see that these things are different. I have a real problem with the idea of something like Buddhism or anything that is about escaping the confines of one's self or one's ego. I think you will have little enough time to experience all of these things. Why are you trying to get rid of them? You'll have plenty of time to merge with the universe when you're lying in your grave. <laughs> and, and I really think that, and I think this kind of denigration of the body and the life of the body and, and, and how it should be set aside as unimportant is terrible. Um, and I think anyone who has ever seen anyone die, who has ever seen anyone die who didn't want to die, who wasn't old and wasn't ready to die, I think can be in no doubt of how important it is to be part of the physical world, to appreciate everything that goes on in here and on in here, and the importance of all of the, making these things work together rather than seeing them as separate entities. Um, so yeah, I'm all for the self, but all together, mm. all in one. <laughs> uh, here's another question for the back. Hi, um, I was wondering how would you stream distraction because modern life seems to be full of distractions and even thoughts and definitely social media seems to make it really kind of, you know, people can't even just do one thing without looking at their phone and it must be, would be, it seems like it would be really torturous to write about that, you know, someone doing something and picking up the phone and all of this. Um, is it something that writing has to regulate, has to sort of smooth out to combat or is it something that could be brought into writing in an interesting way and should it be brought in because this is modern consciousness in a way that with all this distraction? I think reading is the great antidote to distraction, really. Or it is distracting it enough in itself that it shuts everything else out. I do, I do actually have an app on my computer that's called Self Control, um, <laughs> which possibly other people here have. Apple um, Freedom. Yeah, okay. So, um, which, uh, yeah, you can lock yourself out of things that distract you, websites that distract you, not other things. It doesn't work with, you know, people, animals. Um, admin, things like that. Um, the distraction, I don't know, distraction is... I'm interested in what, how we distinguish between mm. distraction and non-distraction as mm. well, because like, presumably we're bombarded by sensations all mm. of the time, and how do we decide what's a distraction and what's not? Is it only if we're deciding we're doing one particular project and then everything becomes a distraction, or is the... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I was, I was talking about attentiveness earlier, and I think um, I think attentiveness is a really useful skill. Um, I don't 
know that we're any worse at it now than we used to be. I think we have a perception that we are because of social media. Um, but as Danielle says, I think there have always been distractions and, in fact, um, probably more onerous distractions of labour and, and illness and things like that. So, um, but how you, yeah, how you write that? Well, I, did, I mean, that's something that, um, for instance, Will Self has been complaining a lot about that... Um, it's kind of the end of the novel because no one is writing about technology um, in a way that's commensurate with the mm. influence and impact it's having on our lives at the moment. Um, uh, which I'm not really that sure about. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I mean there, there are writers who are trying. I mean, Jennifer Egan yeah. you know, has, has certainly engaged with uh, with new technologies, with digital media, and, and uh, I mean, also in the way that she's published some of her work. But um, but I think it's um, I mean that was it was a problem with film. The internet was a problem for film. You know, trying to have these sort of cyber thrillers. You can't have a character sitting in front of a screen for an hour and a half. It's not interesting to watch on your screen. Um, so. So I think you know I think fiction will figure it out, but but yeah, in any case, there's a game game with form to be mm. had there. I'm not particularly interested in to do being it. that person <laughs> who discovers that, yeah. but I think it certainly will mm. it will come. And I think one of the problems in terms of fiction is that you're usually attempting to achieve some kind of universality, and the fact that every five minutes the technology is then out of date, you mm, sort of yes. end up getting locked into this kind of conversation mm. that isn't that will be dead already by the time the book is published in a year's time. Mm. Um, but just I think distraction is mm. again that is an interesting point because of course it's very important. Like boredom is is important because out of boredom you will find your way into thinking about something probably that you hadn't bothered to think about before. And distraction can be incredibly useful for the creative process. You just don't necessarily know it. You may sit there reading lots of things and think, God, I've wasted an entire afternoon on this garbage. But actually, in six months' time, something that you read one day randomly will occur to you and will feed into something else that you're thinking about and will create a link that you hadn't... And and that's, that has always been the same, whatever the technology, that's the same with reading, that you read a book and just think, God, that was desperate. And yet, in a few months' time, mm. there will be something, there will be a line in the book or a, a, you know, a thought that will suddenly begin to have a resonance that hasn't gone away and that you then use to explore something else. So it's, as long as you're making time for doing the important stuff, having time for distraction, I think, is, is also incredibly important. But, you know. and, I think, and I think literature has addressed it, actually. I mean, and I think the modernists have addressed it. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a scene in, um, in the first volume of Dorothy Richardson's Pilgrimage, um, Pointed Roofs, where Miriam is lying in bed. She's sick, I think, and she, her mind goes off in all sorts of directions. She starts thinking about her father's library at home and thinking about the different books, and then they, in turn, sort of spur other uh, remembrances. And I mean, that's you know, this is kind of what happens throughout. Um, yeah, and just like, like so, Molly, yeah, it's the same. Which so it's he stole that yeah. technique. From I mean, when we yeah, when we when we when we talk about distraction. 
that has, a, I suppose, a kind of negative ring to it, but often what we're talking about is the associative way in which the mind works and the fact that it will, in certain moods, in certain places, leap from one thing to another. Um, and then, and be, and as a result of the thing that you have distracted yourself with, be able to make interesting new mm. connections, which is the point of all of it, isn't it? Well, certainly with the writing, it's always about trying to find a new way to make that connection from the in here to the out mm. there, from the in this and to the page. It's it's trying to find the new the new way through that rather than just <gasps> once upon a time, mm. da da da, and you never know what will be the thing that will spur it on. Mm. And actually, we haven't. I mean, we haven't really talked very much about about readers, but um, we're thinking about the sort of inner lives of characters. But the inner life of a reader also has a great deal to contribute to to the book that is being read. I mean, the elements of sort of fantasy and projection, the gaps that we fill in mm. um, as readers. Um, I mean, that's why I think literature does have this ability to. Um, to allow that, I mean, this kind of inhabiting is—it almost sort of goes both ways, I suppose. The reader is inhabited by the character; the reader also inhabits the character in some way. Yeah, I think that's true. Which I think is maybe where modernism began to get itself into trouble when it decided that the reader was of no account. Uh, which is not to say that you mm. should ever write with a reader with the pleasing of a reader in mm. mind but that it will be read and should be understandable, in, even if it is problematic and complex, that it is available there to be understood should the person be willing to put in the time to do it. And I think perhaps with things like Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> However, that's also something I've, I've been thinking a lot more about uh, in recent years, and I, I think I was always quite dismissive of it, and I think I was an idiot because I actually, I think in, in a lot of ways it's a book that if you, as the reader, allow yourself to be affected in a completely different way, if you try to arrive there with as few expectations as possible, you are able to experience that book in a very laborious fashion. But there, there is room for you, even if you're not the specialist reader with the encyclopedic knowledge of mythology and literature. It, there is still something there for you. Um, but yeah, I think I think the interchange between the, the what is read and who is reading and mm. what they're reading is is incredibly important. And and I know as a as a writer, often people come in with very odd interpretations, or what I consider to be quite odd interpretations of what I've written. But at the same time, I know that because of the way that I write, I've kind of left mm. the reader with a lot of options to choose from, and that's also interesting. Well, I, yeah, I, want, I wanted to ask you actually about the, I mean, I suppose I have a question here about making sense, because if you're talking about the, the difficulty or the apparent inaccessibility of something like Finnegan's Wake, um, is there, in that kind of communication of inner experience um, and the, the effects of that on, on language um, are such that in certain types of experimental writing, you, as a reader, you have to sort of let go of this desire to make sense of everything. Mm. I mean, I teach an entire course on experimental writing, and um, I apologise to my students frequently um, for what I'm making them read, but I also sort of say to them, you have to learn to read in a different way. You have to just 
there will be points when you're not going to be able to make sense of every sentence. You're just going to have to move through it and see yeah. what happens. Yeah. And you can still, they're still having that experience and actually they're often very, very responsive to the material they're reading um, without necessarily, you know, once they let go of, but what does this mean? <laughs> you know? yeah, and they, yeah, and I think um, you're right with that more experimental writing it's sometimes the cumulative experience rather than the experience mm. at the end of every sentence. Mm. That's important. It's not necessarily about, okay, she goes to the shop, but more like, and in the end she's dead. <laughs> it, that's the important thing, and you get there through, through a whole accumulation of experience, of words, of uh, syntax, of construction. Everything gets there to the big one rather than, uh, you know, leading you and pulling you along by the nose and saying this is... And, you know, and again, I think for a lot of those kind of writers, and myself I would include in that, I'm not interested in leading the reader by the nose on of making my presence as the writer felt. So that I, I'm, it's very important to me that, I, that my readers would not feel that I'm there instructing them in how to think or what they should be thinking about the characters or how they should be thinking about the characters or these situations, but rather that they are just being shown inside an experience and then left to make what sense of it they will at the end of it. And I, in some way, I can't control that then. Mm -hmm. There's less control for me as the writer because I'm not leading a trail of breadcrumbs to make sure that we all arrive at, at the end of this book, you're all going to love Stephen, <laughs> love Eileen, love that, whatever. You know, that I, it's that I'm, I'm kind of helpless as to what you will think about them. I can only show you what, what they are and who they are. Do we have any other questions? Oh, no. Lots. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi. Um, I think earlier um, Ima uh, mentioned the importance of um, literature, uh, not just concentrating on the mind, but also on the body and bodily functions. Now, I know a lot of books that I've read um, fixate um, on sex. In fact, it's almost universal, but I don't know very many that fixate on the digestive system or the respiratory system, uh, for example, or the hormonal system. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Have you ever read any Beckett? <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot of digestion yeah. going on in there. Um, I don't know. I think maybe you've got a... Um, <laughs> I know. I'm, now, I'm now trying to think of examples of, you know... Um, those, those well-known respiratory novels. Um, I mean, I think it's because, um, I think there are, I mean, I think there are, um, although I cannot bring to mind specific examples, um, I think there are, I think there are, in many novels, there's, um, there are, there are bodies, there are bodies which are often sort of grotesque in one way or another, and that might involve, you know, processes of digestion or indigestion, perhaps. Um, but I think um, I think I would I would go back to something I said earlier that 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 sex and sexual desire do have a a very particular kind of resonance to them because they I think they tell us a lot about the society we inhabit about the kind of structures of power that um, that govern and regulate our lives um, about our relationships with others um, 
I mean, food is very interesting, and um, and so you know perhaps the great uh, digestive novel um, needs to sort of take that as its starting point. John Dunchester, you just know about food. It's not really about the body and digestion, though. Um, so I think it's. So I think those things do appear, but they also probably get less attention, I suppose. Yeah, I think they do. But also, I think generally writing about the life of the body, as I was moaning about earlier, is something that is not really written about with any great interest. Mm. Only as it only sort of appears when it's, you know, oh, an unhappy wife has to spend however long lying in bed staring at the yellow wallpaper. You know, that, that sort of these are sort of plot points rather than points of interest in themselves and actually I think that what's going on inside the body is something that does need to be written about an awful lot more and can be incorporated into the, the psychological life and into every other aspect of, of storytelling much more um, yeah because I mean I think in Beckett there is a lot of digestion there's a loads mm. of farting and shitting and <laughs> constipation and all this kind of thing and that's also his way of speaking about the the sort of internal lives of the characters as well and that's you know I think that's very interesting but I think people do feel squeamish about writing about those things as well and and they do okay well rich people eat one way and poor people eat other ways but they it doesn't really what you eat isn't that interesting in terms of power structure of the sort of mm. that you live in in the way that sex really mm. is well i mean obviously sex sells but i have to say if you want to write that kind of book all you have to do is write 50 shades of gray mm. If you're interested, if you're really interested in exploring sex, then you're going to try and write about it in a different way, um, which is maybe not always so attractive to mm. the fans of pornography. Yeah. It may require a sort of a, a, a deeper look at something, which is maybe doesn't sell quite so easily. Okay, we've got five minutes left. So let's see how many questions we can fit in in five minutes. So. You. Can I just say I really enjoyed reading The Lesser Bohemians. I thought it really blew me away. And initially I'd been a bit wary of it because I thought it's going to be a bit like James Joyce and really difficult to read. And I never read it, even though that James Joyce was on my course because I studied modernism at university and all that. I never read it. But I couldn't put this down. And I, I just, um, it just swept me along on this wave of the stream of consciousness of the character and um, I just think it's a massive achievement to do that. I don't know how you did it. And um, are you going to write another novel in the same kind of stream of consciousness way? Or are you going to use a different style? Well, I think I'm, I am interested in what is possible using that. Because for me, it's also more than... It's really trying to be more than just a stream of consciousness. It's about a stream of existence because it's about trying to carry along every, the body as well and, and give that as much importance as the life of the mind or the emotional life. Uh, so I think I probably will. But I, you know, as my first book was written, Girls Have a Thing, is completely in, internal, whereas Lesser Bohemians is the language begins at that same point but begins to connect up as the connect, character connects to the outer world. 
and and so I don't think I'll ever write anything exactly the same, but I, I think I'm interested in evolving that rather than something completely different. Although I'm not promising. There may also be something <laughs> completely different. <laughs> okay, other questions? Yeah. Sorry, lady in the middle, yeah. If you could wait for the mic just for the podcast. Cool, thank you. Um, so just from the start of working in your chosen careers, what's the biggest changes that you've noticed in yourselves from the way you express your inner thoughts to now? Gosh. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, st I studied philosophy and literature sort of alternately. Um, and I think that probably did have an effect on, um, on how I see myself and how I express myself. Uh, I think I, I mean, because I, I'm, I'm working, I work with literature now, I write about literature, um, albeit often from a, a looking at particular concepts, but I think I'm, of course, very aware of how language works and um, aware of how mediated one's expressions of self are, um, but also of, um, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with the etymology of words, so I will stop myself and get out my OED app on my phone and look something up to get a sense of whether this is the right word or not. Um, it's really fun being around me. Um, um, and, but I, re I recommend the OED app. You get a word of the day, although that's it's actually it's not a particularly good feature. I think you have to pay to get the better app. Anyway, um, so I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I suppose there's a kind of self-consciousness. Um, at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly trying to... Um, a lot of the writing that I'm interested in at the moment is, is of a, a, a kind of auto-fictional and metacritical type, um, which really interests me because I think it's possible to write in ways that are quite personal but also quite theoretical. Um, so I just wrote something recently um, on Maggie Nelson on the Argonauts um, and that I think is a really, really interesting um, way of writing about very personal, intimate things, um, exploring a life, love, a relationship, um, but also dipping in out of various bits of theory and philosophy. Um, so I think uh, this is less maybe about uh, how I express myself and more about how I do my work, but I, I'm certainly, I would love to be able to do that kind of writing. I'm not sure I can, but I would like to. Um, Failing that Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, <laughs> so for the money. Um. Uh, I think I have discarded a whole lot of filters that I wasted a lot of time with mm. when I was younger. And certainly, I mean, I was 35 by the time I had any career. I didn't get published until that point. So really, it's all just happened in the last five years. Um, and I think... Um, going through that process of having to talk about my work publicly rather than just sort of in my head and drunkenly over the dinner table at whoever would listen. Um, I feel much less uh, apologetic about it and much less defensive than perhaps I would have when I was younger. Um, I am much less concerned about... Like the other day, someone wrote something about me in The Guardian, and about 20 different editors emailed me 
to tell me, one, that this terrible thing had been said about me, and two, would I like to write an article to, to uh, refute this? And when I was younger, I would have felt obliged to. And instead, I just thought, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what you say what you like. And, that's, and, I, and I think that's kind of an important place to get to in your working life, is that you, you don't feel that you... People may attack, but you don't necessarily feel obliged to defend because you don't, the attack means nothing. Um, or does it mean enough to be worth waiting, wasting a writing day on? Um, and I think that's it's an interesting thing for a writer to do because this public life of the writer is such a relatively new thing um, and certainly when I started writing I didn't know anything about this and I don't think it existed in the same way this kind of world of festivals and events where you kind of went out and talked about not only your work but a, you know eventually about something about yourself or about your process or your working life uh, and I think a lot of writers find that very tricky, and it is tricky because it's not what you expect. You think as a writer you'll spend your life sitting at a desk on your own, and that's your heaven, is to do exactly that. But now there is this other part of that life, and that's learning how to be unconcerned with what it may think of you. It's very important in order to be able to protect your ability to write without filter. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I mean, that also takes us back to performance, as we were talking about earlier. And I think we have various selves that we perform. And, I mean, who I am in a classroom is, is never going to be exactly who I am in no. other situations. Um, nor should it be. Um, yeah. It's private. I'm private. Yes. Bits of me are private, I suppose. Um, and will stay so. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank you all for coming and ask you to join me in thanking our speakers again.